Nice. Yeah. That song perfectly articulates the way so many of us feel towards the Broncos this morning. <laughs> Welcome to the world's largest grief recovery workshop. It was rough. If more of you would have come to church last night, they might not have lost. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Hey, uh, welcome back. Really, really glad that you're here. There's a lot of you in here. A lot of people still trying to come in. So if you do have an empty seat, please just try to make room. Raise your hand maybe if there's an empty seat beside you so that people can find that. Hey, uh, we're continuing in this series. I want you to think about a moment in your life where you were just incredibly thirsty. It may have been when you decided to run a 5K or a 10K or a, a marathon or something like that. You may have been climbing a 14er. It may take you back to days of, of football camp in the summer. Whatever those moments in your life have been where you were just desperately thirsty, I want you to kind of go to that place and try to remember what that felt like. I've had many of those moments in my life, uh, probably the most recent of which was this fall when I took a team to Uganda. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but in Africa, it's really, really hot. All right, and in Uganda, um, they, they put us to work. We were building fences and stuff like that. And so it became really, really important to us to hydrate, which is not near as important to the Ugandans because having water is not something um, that's easy for them like it is for us. And so they thought we had some sort of deficiency because we drank so much water. And at the beginning of every day, we would secure one of these huge bottles of water and we would carry that thing around like it was the Holy Grail, all right? Because if somebody would have taken that away from us, or if it would have like all spilt or, or if we would have lost it or something like that. I'm telling you, there were moments on the trip where I would have broken down and cried because I needed water so desperately. And when you're so desperate for water, water equals life. It becomes your all-encompassing focus. It gathers all of your attention, your time, and your effort towards getting more of it. And as we've been in this series that Jim introduced us to last week called Jack and Jill, uh, we stole the title from an old nursery rhyme, Jack and Jill went up a hill, that one, you know what I'm talking about. And I don't know if you guys have ever considered the fact that like old nursery rhymes and old stories are often very, very creepy. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Like, and even old prayers like that. Um, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. If you ever want your child to sleep, don't teach them that prayer. All right. <laughs> wait, if I go to sleep, I might die. I'm never sleeping again. That's a horrible thing to teach your kid, all right? And uh, they're making a, a horror movie out of the story Hansel and Gretel because that's actually what it is. It's a very horrible, horrible movie, all right, story. Um, this one's relatively not that creepy compared to some of the other ones. It goes like this. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown and Jill came tumbling after. And Likewise, last week, Jim introduced, introduced us to this woman that Jesus met about 2,000 years ago at a well who was also going to fetch a pail of water. And what we're going to learn in this story is that her story is our story. She makes this journey every day to this well, and yet her thirst is never quenched. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and go to the book of John chapter four, pull out your program. If you don't have your Bible with you, it'll be on the, the program. I don't know if you guys have picked up on this yet or not, but we started our series on Jesus like back in September and uh, we're just on John chapter four. All right. So um, mark your spot in your Bible here. We're going to be here for a while. By my count, it's going to take us three and a half years. Here we go. John chapter four, verse one. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more. 
to Galilee. So you got this group of religious guys known as the Pharisees who actually began as this well-intentioned movement. Their sole purpose was to try to draw people's hearts back to the scripture and back to the heart of God. And as often happens when movements start, they start well, but then they begin to lose focus and get distracted and lose sight of their original goal. And that's, what exa- that's exactly what happened with the Pharisees. Instead of being about drawing people to scripture and drawing people to the heart of God, they actually became about religious rules and they found themselves oftentimes getting in religious arguments and controversies. And so that's what we see happening here is they're nitpicking about religious rules and things like that and they're start, trying to start a controversy with Jesus and Jesus is having none of it. He's like, you know what, I'm just gonna head out of town. So he leaves the southern end of the kingdom and he heads from, from Judea and he's gonna head back to kind of his hometown area of Galilee. And then John makes this really interesting statement in verse four, he says this. Now he had to go through Samaria. Now, geographically, as you can see, that, that's true. That's the shortest distance between those two places of, of Galilee and Judea would be to go directly through Samaria. But culturally, that was not true at all. Uh, culturally, what most Jewish people would do is they would actually go sometimes up to 60 miles out of their way to the east in order to avoid traveling through Samaria because there was such deep-seated hatred, racial hatred, between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. And so when John says Jesus had to go through Samaria, it almost makes it feel like Jesus has a purpose specifically for going through Samaria. Look at verse five. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So this is a a relatively famous piece of ground, famous well. We learned about Joseph and Jacob and those guys back in the summer in the Mojo series. And Jesus sits down by this well. Now, the well in third world countries, both past and present, you go to Africa today, you'll see this happen. Uh, The well is kind of the equivalent of the workplace water cooler. Okay, it's the place where people talked about what was going on in the town and in their day and in their work and in their lives. They exchanged ideas and they shared the news of the town. And you gotta understand this was pre-Twitter. All right, this was before Facebook, before smartphones, before newspapers, before televisions, before any of this. So this mind-blowing thing happened at the well. People would actually look at each other and speak to one another, all right? It was, it was incredible. Nobody was at the well doing this, all right? It didn't, it didn't happen. And so, so this is kind of the way it worked. And Jesus, though, sits down at this well. It says that it was about the sixth hour. Now, in Jewish culture, they started their clock at six o'clock in the morning. So the sixth hour was actually high noon. Now, nobody actually goes to the well typically in the middle of the day. If you go again to a third world country today, you'll see people go to the well early in the morning or late in the evening, uh, but not in the middle of the day because again, it gets very, very hot in the middle of the day and you don't want to be lugging water during the heat of the day. Plus, you get out of water in the morning for the rest of your day and in the evening for the nighttime. You don't go to the well during the day. And yet, Jesus sits down by this well and he meets somebody. It's really interesting. Look at verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Now, if you were hearing this story a couple thousand years ago and you were a Jewish person and you heard the phrase Samaritan woman, you would immediately go, Uh oh. 
because there was so much cultural baggage, it's almost impossible for us to peel back the layers on it and fully understand it. But Jesus as a man and as a Jewish rabbi, it wouldn't have been socially acceptable for him to speak to a woman alone, much less to a Samaritan woman. And so the way I picture it is this, Jesus is sitting by this well and the Samaritan woman is walking towards the well. And as she looks in the distance, she sees there's like, there's a person there, which is, which is odd because she's not expecting to see anybody because again, it's the middle of the day. And as she gets closer, she would have observed by his dress and by his beard and by his hair that he's a, he's a Jewish man, not only a Jewish man, but a Jewish rabbi. So as she picked up on that, I'm guessing she would have kept her distance and given him an opportunity to probably bail out, walk away so that he could avoid interacting with her. Yet as she takes one cautious step after the other, he doesn't move, he doesn't budge, he stays right where he is. And she's probably wondering what in the world's going on. And when she gets up there, she's probably expecting to get some sort of disgusted look some sort of rolling of the eyes, some sort of condemnation from him. Yet what she gets is something totally unexpected when he says, will you give me a drink? And again, you, you, we can't fully grasp how mind-blowing that statement was because for Jesus to even speak to her was one thing, much less to say, can I actually have a drink? I'll, I'll actually touch something that you've touched and drink from something that you've touched. That would have been unheard of in his culture because Jewish people considered Samaritans unclean. And if they were to touch anything a Samaritan touched, they would have been unclean. And yet Jesus goes, will you give me a drink? And we step back from that and we go, how stupid is that? How foolish is that? I mean, how primitive and barbaric is that? And that's a really good question. Wasn't that long ago in our own culture that we thought the same way about people? So maybe this isn't as unheard of as it it feels. Yet Jesus asks her for a drink. Look at verse verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. I think she thinks he's had a heat stroke. I do. I think she's going, are are you okay? Is something wrong with you? Are you delirious? Did you just wander out here by yourself? Do Do you have a fever? What's the problem here? You've obviously forgotten one important thing. We're not supposed to talk to each other. And then Jesus says something incredibly profound to her as Jesus has a tendency to do. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The most important word in that whole phrase right there is the word who. Who. We're going to see over and over again in this series, Jesus pushed through all the cultural baggage, all the relational baggage, all the religious baggage, everything that's going on and surrounding the context of her life. He's going to push through all of it and he's going to continually look at her and go, no, 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 look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm what's most important in your life. I'm the thing that can fix. I'm the thing that can satisfy what's broken in your life. Don't, don't, don't get distracted by all these other things. Look at me. You see, Jesus seems to recognize there's something, there's a much deeper need in her life than just simply filling up her pail with water as she's come to do on this day. Jesus sees that there's something deeply broken in her, partly because he's Jesus, but also because he knows something about her. And we can get at that by asking a simple question. Why is she there right now? Why is she there right now? As we said, nobody goes to the well in the middle of the day, so why is she there right now? And I would say at least two reasons she's there in the middle of the day. One is this, she's hiding. She's hiding because she's ashamed. She's ashamed. She doesn't want to hang out at the water cooler. She doesn't want to see people. She doesn't want to socialize. And the question becomes, why? It's because she's learned a lesson each of us in this room learned a long, long time ago when we were really little kids. It goes like this. People can be mean. 
In fact, people can be cruel. And in this culture, um, specifically, it was women who most often went to draw water each day at the well. So this woman is specifically trying to avoid other women. Why is that? What I'm about to say um, is going to probably sting a little bit, but I want you to also understand, ladies in the room, this is based on what women have told me over and over and over again over the past 15 years of ministry. This is what women have told me, but it goes like this. Women have a tendency to be really, really hurtful towards one another with their words. There's a reason why all four services this weekend have had a bunch of women just nodding back at me. And again, I've worked with every age group from preschool all the way to, you know, about to go to heaven school, all right, and everything in between. And the amount of conversations, interventions, meetings, whatever you want to call them that I've had to have with men and boys versus girls and women based on what they've said to one another pales in comparison because guys, we, we, we're, we're kind of simple. We just have this tendency to just punch each other and move on, which by the way, I think is far more efficient, all right? And far, for the record, far less painful than what women have a tendency to do to one another with their words. And so here's this woman. She's going, you know what? I'm out. I'm out. I, I can't take it anymore. She's hiding because she's ashamed. And the question becomes, what is she ashamed of? We're going to find out over the course of this series, it has to do with her relationships with men. She's been married five times. The man she's now living with is not her husband, and it's not a stretch to assume that she's consequently been labeled, probably called a lot of names. And here's the thing. She's more aware than anyone else on the planet how deeply broken her life is, except for one other person knows even more than her, and that's the man who's sitting across from the well right now. His name is Jesus. But the last thing she needs is one more person to roll their eyes, one more person to whisper, one more person to condemn her. She would rather hide, she'd rather be isolated, and she'd rather be alone than to put up with that anymore. And she's been through a lot, five divorces. We're going to talk about divorce more in this series later. We're going to talk about the fallout of divorce on men and women and children and families. But before we ever get to that, let's just stay here for a minute because Jesus looks at her and goes, if you knew... If you only knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And I think Jesus says that with longing and concern in his voice and in his eyes and in his tone. I think he's also referencing a verse from the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, where God says this, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns that cannot hold water. They've walked away from me and they've tried to find what only I can give somewhere else. And that's our story. That's her story. We do this over and over and over again. It looks a million different ways. We look at God and we go, God, I don't believe you. God, I don't trust you. I don't believe that you have what's best in mind for me. I don't believe that you can fully satisfy me. God, I don't believe that you can provide me with what I need. So I'm going to take my bucket and I'm going to go elsewhere. And I'm going to try to get all those things that I think I need somewhere else. And we'll fill up our bucket and then we'll look in it the next day. And it's totally empty the next day. And then the crazy thing about it is we'll go back to the same place and try to get it the next day. And again, it looks a million different ways. For some of us, it's a, it's a substance. We're all good as long as we're, we're drinking. Problem is you wake up the next morning and when you look in the mirror, sometimes the person looking back at you, you, you don't like that person at all. So you go back to the same well so that you don't have to think about it day after day after day. For some of us, it's stuff. We think like this. We go, man, if I could only have that. 
If I, if I could have that, I wouldn't need anything else the rest of my life. I'd be fully satisfied. I would never ask for anything again if I could only have that. And then sometimes we get that and it does satisfy for a minute. Then it breaks, fades, it spoils, it goes away, it loses its luster. And we go, man, well, okay, well, if I could now have this to go with that, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be satisfied. And we keep going back to the same well of stuff. And it, again, can look a million different ways. It could be cars, it could be houses, it could be guns, it could be clothes, it could be shoes, it could be technology, it could be furniture at Ikea. I don't know. It could be a million different things. Some of you are like, that furniture is pretty cool, Scott. All right, whatever. All right. It always runs out, it always runs dry, and it never fully satisfies. Or what about this one? Maybe you'll resonate with this one, the approval of others. I was doing a, a conference, speaking for a conference, a bunch of college students a couple weeks ago, and one of the sessions I did was just a small session with, with a handful of college students who were interested in going into ministry, and it was Q&A. They were just asking me questions, and I was answering off the cuff, which is always dangerous. I hope they didn't record it. But anyway, one of them looked at me and went, yeah, I got a question. What's your biggest struggle in ministry? What is that? And I said, for me, it's allowing my identity to be tied into my inbox on Monday morning. You, you feeling me? You understand what I'm saying? So like tomorrow, my email will fill up and some of you will go, Scott, you did a great job this weekend. And some of you guys will go, Scott, you did terrible and you should never do this again. And allowing my identity to be uh, determined by either one of those extremes is totally destructive. Because neither one of those things actually is allowed to identify me, but the struggle for me is to live for your approval. So on Monday morning, I go to the well of my inbox. Maybe you can resonate with that. Some of us, it's, it's our kids. It's their presence in our house. It's their performance in a classroom. It's their obedience in public. It can look a million different ways, but we, we derive our very identity, all of our joy and all of our satisfaction has to come from them, which means that once they're no longer in our house, whether that means they're just now in elementary school and you're going, I don't know what to do with all these hours apart from my kids because I don't know who I am apart from my kids, or when they grow up and they move out of the house and both of you look at each other and you go, I, we don't know who we are, we don't know who each other are without them in the house anymore, or what happens when all of my identity is determined by whether my kids behave well in public. That's gonna go bad for me. I have a three-year-old. They don't know how to behave in public, all right? It's gonna go bad for me. What happens when, what happens when my identity is determined by how, how well my son or daughter perform on a, on a field? And I'm really good as long as they do great, and I'm really bad if they do bad. Yeah, that's, that's really, really destructive. Or, or what about this one? As long as we're talking about the most sensitive areas of our life, let's just get after it, all right? Let's talk about this. What, what about when a woman lives like everything she needs in life has to come from a man? When everything she needs has to come from him, whether it's a boyfriend or a husband or whoever that may be, and what happens when that man, understandably, can't provide everything that she needs in life? Sometimes that's when the seeds of an affair get planted, when a woman goes, you know what, maybe if he can't give it to me, somebody else can. Jim texted me yesterday morning and said he was um, listening to the radio, of course, the country station. He was listening to the radio and they were talking about how um, this week has actually been dubbed National Adultery Week. 
coming out of the holidays, all the pressure from the holidays and the relational tension, just saying, hey, just, just go have an affair, it'll, it'll relieve your stress. And my response when I texted him back was, um, who gets to decide that? Was there a vote that I was unaware of? Is it a Hallmark holiday? Like, who gets to decide that for the rest of us? But it is symptomatic of, of our culture, right? Saying, if you're not getting everything you need from him or her, go find it somewhere else and go back to maybe not that well, but this well, right? Or even if, even if you're not brazen enough to go have an actual affair, you'll emotionally and mentally check out and go read Fifty Shades of Grey, all three of them. That makes four services in a row with really uncomfortable laughter. See, this is, this is the thing, all right? So last year, we did a series called Reverse Engineering, and we said really hard things to the men in this church. And over the course of this past year, a lot of women have been going, would you please do something like that for women? So th- this is what you asked for, all right? And, and just so you know, with the whole Fifty Shades of Grey thing, I don't get it, all right? And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guy, so there's a lot of things I don't get. And so before I came up here this weekend to like pronounce like my judgment on Fifty Shades of Grey, I thought I better ask some women. And so I asked some, some women on our staff specifically Specifically, I asked um, Karen Berge, who, who oversees all of women's ministry in our church, to just, I said, just help me on this one. Help me understand what the deal is with Fifty Shades of Grey. So I'm going to read you what she said so that when you get mad, you can email Karen <laughs> underscore Berge at flatironschurch.com. Karen says this, I would say it's porn, but much more insidious, really. Oddly, it's characterized as romance in the iTunes store. It's designed, I believe, to promote sexual fantasy and arousal specifically for women. It's less crude than what would be more immediately identified as porn. There are more interesting characters in an actual story, all of which is designed to pull women in. I think it's destructive because it does what porn does for men, so that what's arousing is impossible to find in a mundane, unexciting marriage 5 to 15, 10, 25 years down the road. And you know what, I totally agree, so you can get mad at me too. And I've ushered this, this challenge out there all weekend where I've said, listen, if, if you're a woman in this church and you're a follower of Jesus, if you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus, just listen in on this one. But if you're a woman in this church and you're a follower of Jesus and you can actually make a case to me for how Fifty Shades of Grey is, is redemptive in regards to drawing a husband and a wife together in the context of marriage in a God-honoring way, I'll present that case before the whole church in a couple weeks when I'm back up here. I just don't think you can do it. And nobody has so far this weekend, and a couple have tried. (laughs) What what about this? What happens when a man looks to a woman to provide everything he needs? And worse yet, what if he perceives that she does at first? And all of a sudden, he wakes up one day, and he goes, you know what? You used to fully satisfy me, and now you don't. He goes, maybe somebody else can. See, I think that's what happened to this woman at the well that day. I think that's her story. Because here's what you have to understand. She couldn't initiate divorce. Women could not initiate divorce in this culture. So men have repeatedly divorced her. There was a culture of divorce during Jesus' day that actually far surpassed our own culture of divorce. Amongst the religious leaders in Israel, um, men, there were actually these teachers who were teaching that men could divorce their wives for any and every reason, and all they had to do was write them a certificate of divorce, and if your wife burnt the toast, you could be divorced by 9 a.m., literally. And Jesus, Jesus confronted them about it. 
So if it was like that amongst the religious leaders in, in Israel, it was much worse in Samaria. See, we don't know the, all the reasons why this woman got divorced, and I'm so glad that we don't, because that allows us to focus on the bigger issue, which is simply this. What is so broken in these men that they would treat her this way? And what is so broken in her that she would keep coming back to the same well of men repeatedly from one relationship to the next, to the degree that she's just now settling to just live with this dude? One commentator I read said this, we have to consider the fact that maybe she was unable to have children and that was why these men continued to divorce her as each man married her and realized she can't produce children for me, they just divorced her and moved on to the next one. And if that's the case, can you imagine the pain? Can you imagine the scars that this woman is carrying around? See, single women didn't have very many options in this culture, most of them turned to prostitution Or what if, what if she did have children from some of these marriages and what if she was unable to provide for them on her own and she's going, listen, if I have to give some of myself over so that I can feed my kids, I'll do it. Doesn't justify everything, but it helps us walk in her shoes a little bit, doesn't it? See, no matter what the cause of the divorce is, again, Jesus is going, let's get past all that because I want to make a comparison for you. He's sitting with her at this well on this day and he's going, listen, this little journey that you take every day back to this well is a great metaphor for your life. You keep coming back here day after day after day because what you get here eventually runs out and you keep coming back here to get more of it. Your life is exactly the same. You keep coming back to the same place to get more of what's already run out and run dry repeatedly in your life. See what Jesus is saying and the bottom line this morning is simply this, don't try to get from anyone or anything what you can only get from God. Don't try to get from anyone or anything what you can only get from God because if you do, and this is so many of our stories, if you do, everything eventually falls apart. It's how everything fell apart to begin with. It started with a couple. Their names were not Jack and Jill, their names were Adam and Eve. God created Adam, the first man, and then he created Eve, the first woman, and he created them in his image, and he created them, and they had perfect uh, intimacy with each other and with God, which means they, they had nothing to hide. They were not ashamed. In fact, the first couple chapters of Genesis, if you look at the way their relationship is described, most often their relationship is described by saying this, they were naked and unashamed which was far more than just a physical description of their relationship. It was actually a a spiritual description of their relationship. They had nothing to hide. They had perfect intimacy. None of us, no person in this room has ever experienced perfect intimacy with another human being or with God. We can have levels of intimacy and connection, but none of us have ever experienced what Adam and Eve experienced And yet for them, temptation came into the midst of their relationship, just like temptation comes into the midst of ours, our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. And the temptation they were faced with is going to sound really, really familiar. There's this voice going, man, are you sure God wants what's best for you? Are you sure you can really trust God's intentions toward you? Hey, what if if God's holding out on you? You ever think of that? What if you could find something better somewhere, somewhere else? And for Adam and Eve, it came in the form of fruit on a tree. God had given Adam a, uh, Adam a rule before he ever created Eve. And he said, you can eat from any tree in the garden. There's this one tree. Don't take the fruit from that tree and don't eat it. 
It was going to be Adam's responsibility to communicate this rule to Eve. And so we find out that when temptation comes, Adam has communicated the rule to Eve. She says this, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Which she knows the rule, but she's actually putting words in God's mouth because God never said anything about not touching the tree. He just said, don't eat from the tree. And then as the temptation intensifies, this is what happens. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, watch this, who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. When they sin, two things immediately happen. Number one, they're ashamed. Intimacy is broken between them and God and between each other. They functionally become somebody that I used to know. We used to be like this, now we're like this. They're ashamed and because they're ashamed, they hide. They hide from God. And we look at that and go, that's just silly to to hide from God. But you and I, we do it every day, don't we? Different ways. Same thing that woman at the well was doing a couple thousand years ago. She was ashamed and she was hiding. And Adam and Eve, when they're confronted with what they've done, they blame. They don't accept responsibility. They blame. God calls Adam to account first. And Adam just goes, man, God, this is your fault and her fault. If anybody's not at fault, it's me. You created her. That's what he says. And then, and then God goes, Adam, you have, to, you have to own this. See, Adam, you didn't step up. Adam, you sat. You were right there with her. It's not like she tricked you. It's not like she was off grabbing this fruit and then she walks three miles over to you and goes, here, taste this. She didn't trick you into this. You were right there with her, Adam. You didn't speak up. You didn't say anything. And it was your responsibility to protect your wife and you didn't do it. So there's going to be fallout from this. And he looks to Eve, and Eve does the same thing. She goes, actually, the devil made me do it. She plays that card. God goes, no, you have to own this. You knew what you were not supposed to do, and you did it. And because you did it, there's going to be fallout because of what you've done. And the fallout is what you and I have been living in. See if any of this fallout sounds familiar. The fallout of this is that women are going to have a tendency to go to the well of men for their identity, Women are going to have a tendency to try to get out of men something that men cannot provide for them. And in demanding that out of men will actually destroy relationships with men. For some women, it looks like this, allowing their value and their worth be determined by the approval of men. For other women, it looks like this, allowing their value and worth to be determined by how well they can prove themselves as being better than every man around them. Do you understand that's the same thing? They're just opposite sides of the same coin. Either way, it's a woman getting her value relative to a man. For men, this is our story. We're gonna have this horrible tendency to find our identity in our status and in our performance, which is gonna include underneath of that this horrible tendency to rule over women and to demand get, to get things out of women that women cannot provide and in so doing will destroy relationships with women. For some men, we find, find their worth in their wife's looks, body, sex appeal. So when that starts to fade, just trade her in for a newer and younger model. 
For some men, instead of lovingly leading and providing for and protecting their wife, instead they'll be lazy, they'll give up and they'll hand over their God-given responsibility and put that God-given responsibility on the shoulders of their wife who was never meant to carry that responsibility, which by the way is called passive abuse. See, before we get into all the ins and outs, before we get into all the angles of this Jack and Jill series, we gotta establish two really important facts because if we get these two things wrong, we'll get everything else wrong, all right? So the first one is this, Jack makes a terrible God. Second one's just like it, Jill makes a terrible God. Man can make a good husband, woman can make a good wife, but not a good God. Let me talk to the single people in the room. If I could say kind of one thing today to a lot of the single people in the room, a lot of the single people I know, man, your expectations are just through the roof crazy. Shorten your list, all right? <laughs> right? Write that down. I know so many women who what you're looking for literally is Mr. Perfect. And please understand me, I'm not trying to be condescending when I say this. There's only one Mr. Perfect and his name is Jesus. The rest of these jokers out here, are not him, all right? You're not gonna find Mr. Perfect on match.com in a bar or in this church, all right? You, you, you're not. Let me talk to the single guys in the room for a second, all right? Everybody just take a deep breath, here we go, all right? Do you, guys, do you know what unicorns, the Easter bunny, and the woman of your dreams all have in common? They're figments of your imagination, all right? Shorten your list. Here's a better idea. You can dream about a wife, but let your wife be your wife. Let your husband be your husband. Let her be her, let him be him, and let God be God. Your husband, whether you have one yet or not, never has, cannot, and never will be able to provide you with all that you need, and it, listen, if you demand that he does that for you, you'll destroy him, you'll destroy yourself, and you'll destroy your marriage. Your wife has not, never will, never can be able to provide you with all that you need. If you demand that she does, same thing will happen. You'll destroy her, you, and your, and your marriage. Does not mean, do not quote me as saying, Scott says don't try to be a better husband. That's not what I'm saying. Try to be a better husband. Try to be a better wife. It simply means this, your identity as a person is not determined by how well he does at being a husband. Your identity as a person is not determined by how well she does at being a wife. Your identity is determined by someone else. Again, his name is Jesus. This is what I mean. Look at Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. For it is by grace that, if you, that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Watch this, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You've been offered this free gift of salvation, and if you've responded and received that gift of salvation, listen, you're no longer identified by your sin, you're identified by God's Son. It doesn't mean that you can go out bragging about who you are, it just means you know who you are. And it says here, you are God's workmanship. Do you know what that word is? In the original language, the Greek, it's the same word that was used for poem. 
You're, you're God's creative expression. You're God's masterpiece, which means that if you are in Christ, you are not meant to be ashamed. You are not meant to be hiding. You are meant to be put on display as a demonstration of who God is and what he's done when he gave his gift of Jesus to you. And that's a great purpose. Yet so many of us, we wandered in here today. The last thing we feel like is a masterpiece. You came in here and you're still hiding because you're ashamed and you're desperately thirsty and you're falling apart on the inside and falling apart on the outside too. And Maybe just like Jesus had an appointment scheduled with that woman at a well 2,000 years ago in a town called Sychar right outside of Samaria, maybe Jesus had an appointment scheduled with you today on a cold Colorado morning the day after the Broncos lost the playoff game. And maybe he's saying the same thing to you that he said to her, which is this, if you only knew, if you only knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The gift is Jesus. The thing we get when we go to God that we can't get from anywhere or anything else or anyone else, is Jesus. He is the gift. That's why Jesus says in John 7, 37, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, which is just another way of saying don't try to get from anyone or anything what you can only get from God, and that is Jesus. So let me say it this way. Some of you are in here going, man, Scott, this is like my first time here, okay? This is a lot, all right? This is my second time here. I'm not sure about this whole Jesus thing, this whole well thing, this whole salvation thing. I'm not sure about all that kind of stuff. That's great. I'm really, really glad you're here. What if this, what if the only challenge for you is simply this, just hang out at the well for a while. Just hang out at the well for a while and just see if what Jesus offers is something he can deliver on. Just see if this Jesus person is for real or not. Just see if what he says is actually true. The way I see it, you only have really two options. You got two deals on the table, as we like to say around here. You, you can either hang out at the well for a little while and just see, or you can go back to what you already know doesn't work because you've done it over and over again your entire life. Those are the deals on the table. There's this guy a long time ago named David. He found himself literally in a desperately thirsty situation. He was in the middle of a desert. He had people chasing him, trying to kill him. He was just in a horrible, horrible place. And he writes this song. He prays this prayer. It's found in Psalm 63.1. He says this, oh God. And I think he groaned that. I think he went, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water there's this old chorus that and I remember hearing this when I was a really little kid I've heard it my whole life sung it my whole life and it's always had this calming effect on me it was written based on this psalm 63 1 it just goes like this oh God you are my God and I will ever praise you there's some simplicity in that prayer but it's also very very profound what if every day this week, starting with this morning, before we even let our feet hit the ground, we just prayed that prayer, oh God, you are my God, amen. Because if that's true, if God, you're my God, that means I'm not God. And that takes the pressure off me to try to be God. And God, if you're God, she's not God, and that takes the pressure off her. I don't have to demand out of her something she can't provide for me. And if you're God, he's not God. And if you're God, they're not God. 
It recalibrates everything. Oh God, you are my God. Here's what I've learned. When, when I allow the people that I love in my life to be who God created them to be and not demand that they be my God, my relationships with them get unbelievably better. Let's all stand together today. Randy's gonna teach us this song and let's just make this our prayer today. Oh God, you're our God. And God, we run so many different directions demanding that different people, places, and things be our God and yet they can't provide. God, you provided when you sent your one and only son, Jesus. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for being even willing to be our God. God, we want to praise you all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.